This is Raphael. I'm Lauren. We're the Pacheco siblings, and welcome to the Hypercube Podcast, a talk show in which two siblings converse about anything and everything. All right. I'm getting that down pat. (laughs) So I suppose we should start this by pointing out something. So we here at PQ, at least by the time this is released, Mm -hmm. we will have released, which means you likely will have seen. Hopefully. The Dennis Chronicle season two announcement teaser. And if you haven't, then we'll probably delay the release of this episode. (laughs) Maybe pull a switcheroo and do another pre-recorded one. But yeah. And if that happens, this won't be in there. (laughs) That's fair. That's trippy. Oh, Edit- time is weird. Editing. So, regardless, you're done with Chronicle season two. It's, it's out. Announced. Go watch it. It's announced. If you haven't seen it already, go see it. Yes. Well, not you, you can't watch the whole season. Just well, the just teaser the, the teaser. The, the <laughs> teaser trailer. The announcement. We yeah. That so we, we did that an we are doing it. Teaser reveal and oh, we can finally talk about it. Finally, so, Project Clash, the project that we were producing under the code name. Project Clash, the working title, uh, is actually the Dennis Chronicle season two. We can finally update that on our website and on everywhere else. And we can finally talk about this. Talk about it openly. In plain English, that it is officially a thing. Yeah. So season two. Yeah. Season two. Our first season two. So I guess a brief explainer, because I don't know who all might be listening to this. Right. We definitely have gained some new audience members since the Dennis oh, Chronicle. Sure. So as a brief explainer of what exactly the Dennis Chronicle is, the Dennis Chronicle is a Minecraft fantasy machinima web series that we produced back in 2017. At that point, we'd been working on it a couple of years, so it began much further back than that. However, it was released in the summer of 2017 and remains quite possibly the biggest production we've ever done on our channel. Easily. But that being said, season two dwarfs the production of the first season by a very large margin. Uh, A huge margin, a quantifiable margin. Like we actually have a budget. We actually have a budget. We've got obviously we've uh, taken to working with actual professional voice actors since then. So it's got a full cast of awesome people that I can't wait for you all to meet. Mm -hmm. Whereas the first season was very much because it was all done voluntarily for free. It was pretty much cobbled together from whoever we could get. We didn't really have. There are very few people on that cast who would even consider themselves actors. You know what I mean? Um, Very few. There there were some, but very few. Whereas second season entirely, we got a full cast of really exciting performers that I can't wait for you all to see inhabit their characters. We've already directed a majority of the voiceover Mm -hmm. and it's so exciting, right? I mean, there are some performances in the second season. Just the experience of recording all these actual actors in a booth setting with feedback and everything like that. It's like, this is this is so much better already. Just the oh, experience yeah. alone of recording Not the voiceover. We've been doing it remotely. Yeah. Booth uh, setting, for, though. For like We entirety. have that kind of protocol. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were do, doing it in the style as if we were recording in a booth and just doing one-on-one. Yeah. Uh, not one-on-one, but like, uh, yeah, directing in real time. It's called live recording. And yeah, getting the feedback as we go. And it's being so able to good. give notes. These actors are, are great. Yeah, we have some great performers. Amazing talent. Yeah. So I'm super excited for everyone to see this. That being said, it's in very early production, which if you could say we're in production at all, I guess we kind of are now. We are but in production. Yeah, things are just starting to get shot for it. And pretty much all the footage that you saw in the teaser was shot for the teaser and likely won't actually be used in the show proper. However, it is beginning. It is beginning. <laughs> Indeed. So it has begun. Yeah. So it's been entirely written for a while. 
were still in the process of getting the very last of the voiceover done. And since that is all getting done, we are officially going into starting principal photography in the not too distant future. By the way, Lauren, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you, but I can mention this publicly here. It doesn't ruin anything. But with the last of the voiceovers that we've been casting for here, um, just to clean up some little extras and whatnot and fill in those spaces, mm-hmm. I got one of those recordings back already. Yep. And that. with that one, we actually have all of the recording done for the entire first episode. The entire first episode Whoa. is fully voiced. Oh, it's and not edited, of course, but all the all the files are there. We have everything we need to put together and edit. Precisely. Yeah. All the character voiceover is done for the entire first episode. That is. I think that might be the only one of its kind, but I'd have to double check. Yeah. Um, the, mm, the second episode, maybe. Hmm. I'm not sure, but I know for sure that the first episode the voiceover is entirely done for it, which is an exciting milestone to think about. Yeah. But yeah, I just yeah. need to get to cutting and mixing and all that so that we have the tracks for the machinimators to edit to or to shoot to, I should say. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's super exciting. We've got a really awesome storyline in the works for you, and hopefully y'all will enjoy it because this is hands down the most ambitious production that we've yet attempted. Like I said, the first one was pretty ambitious, but this one dwarfs that one in scale mm-hmm. and in just the sheer, not only the scale in terms of the quantity of the moving parts involved, but also the quality Absolutely. as well. Like we have some incredible talent working on this from the, uh, from the cast of actors to uh, the machinimators mm-hmm. and true artists of the Minecraft machinima medium that we're, we've brought on as freelancers. It's going to be, ooh, and we're not talking yet about who all is going to be working right, on right, it. Right, right, right. But I will say it's going to be, it's going to be like an all-stars lineup for- <laughs> Yeah, a who's who? For, for animators, though. Yeah. <laughs> because normally that refers to the cast, but I say you could have all-stars for crew, too. Absolutely. <laughs> and like even between us, like our craft has- gotten so much better in the how many years since uh oh, Eden yeah. has come out well that teaser trailer was hopefully you're <laughs> speaking in your present yes. about our future um that teaser trailer that you likely have seen in the past <laughs> was uploaded ideally on the five-year anniversary five years of the first episode of the Denneth chronicle so yeah, that's exciting. It's been five years since then. I don't know if that's exciting or disappointing, actually, but it's been five it's exciting. years. It's, it's exciting. And we have definitely improved our craft much since then. I honestly think the second season is a lot better written than the first. I was going to say, we, um, we're going into this with a lot more intention. Obviously, we we generally had an idea of what we were doing going into season one, or rather going into Edeneth, because we didn't know it was going to be a season one yet. That's true. We designed it initially as a standalone, open and closed yeah. story. With but, a beginning, middle, and end. But now that we're going into season two, knowing all of our principles, everything that we had already made for season one, going into season two, we hit the ground running. We already knew what we needed to do to make this story good. We went into it with intention. And honestly, you did some really, really quality storytelling in this. Like the, like the writing is fantastic. I can't wait to, I can't wait to see it. And like I've read it, but I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, that's that that, that yeah. means a lot. And like, because we, we we came up with a lot of the plot elements, of course, and right. a lot of the story uh, design together. But obviously, your like your writing is fantastic. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, just how you brought all those you know things together. I can't wait to see. We yeah, I am I am really proud of how this 
potentially could turn out. <laughs> <laughs> I know the potential is high it's right now. We just have to high. not screw it up. That's um, all we have to do is all have to, it's all there. It's all ready to go. Yeah. We just have to do our job. We just have to not screw it up. Yeah. So it's incredibly exciting to be working on this. Like I said, even like writing wise, like the first season, I'm still super proud of. It was highly ambitious and we did it. We mm-hmm. followed through on our promise. And however, there is still some stuff, I think just generally storytelling wise, that I can look back and cringe on. But I've grown so much as a storyteller since then and I have so much more experience yeah, under my yeah. belt. And I feel like the script is so much tighter and I'm really, oh, it's super tight. really passionate about the story that we're telling with this one. And, so, and the same with the original as well. I was really passionate about the themes and whatnot that are overall contained within it. But this is kind of continuing that trend and going in a bit of a different direction and some directions, perhaps, that people might not expect. And, yeah, I'm really excited. I I think it's a lot better written than the first season. It's definitely a lot better voiced. And it is going to be way better animated because it is actually going to be animated. Yeah, because with the exception of a few VFX shots, which were basically animated through compositing. Uh, there wasn't really much in the way of proper animation in the first season. It yeah. was mostly just walking around and swinging. <laughs> and swinging. <laughs> and head bobbing. But yeah, it is. If Well, if you thought Beyond was good, which Beyond is a good testament to where we are now in term, in a technical Minecraft machinima craft perspective, right? Mm-hmm. When Apple knocked it out of the ballpark for that one. If you thought that was good, wait till you see this, mm-hmm. because that was really just a test run yeah. for what that was a proof what's of concept. possible. Yeah, a proof of concept for getting season two working, because that's what we uh, we can talk about this now. Yeah, we, that's we, true. We, we designed releasing and producing Beyond as a test for getting our Edenith production line going, because mm-hmm. we wanted to see if like how it would be to you know actually first of all have somebody else be in charge of directing, mm-hmm. um, doing yeah, getting someone else's machinimated yep. talents. And obviously turned out fantastic. Oh, yeah. Definitely one of the better shorts that's on our, our channel right now. And there are some incredible shots so in good. that in that short that still blow my mind every time I, I see them. Incredible shots like, yeah, Jed Lupoy, a.k.a. One Apple Corrupted Films, uh, is just a master craftsman at what he does. And his I think the thing that really sets him above the rest is his cinematography. I really don't know if there's any other Minecraft machinimator who has as much of a cinematic eye as he does because he knows how to make composition and yeah. make it smack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was super awesome having that one come together. But, yeah, that really was just the testing grounds for what is now the Nenith Chronicle Season 2 fully fledged. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, it'll come out in 2023. That's what we're shooting for. That's what we're shooting for. But of course, our life is very busy. So we'll see. We'll <laughs> this see. is a lot of production. When Soon I say this TM. is a lot, <laughs> this is a lot. This re- is huge. I think it's longer than the first season overall. I in think page so. Count, yeah, I think so. If I'm not mistaken. But like, even so, I think it's safe to say that we want to make sure this is done right. So obviously, like, if we need to take our time to get it complete and done the right way, we will. Obviously, uh, we won't rush into getting it released for the sake of getting it released. We want to get this done right. Yeah. Yeah. And with the first season, you know, that took two years and that was pretty much working at it almost full time with aside from some other stuff that was going on. But really, nowadays, our time is so much tighter. We don't really have as much time available to commit to it, Mm -hmm. which is a large part of why we're trying to multiply our efforts by bringing more people in. Yeah. And so. 
So who knows? It might even out in the end in terms of production speed. It might may even be faster, but it's definitely going to take some time because you can't make quality film without time. Indeed. That, well, that's not true. There is the three uh, production framework. That is true. The, the, the okay. three tier production framework. That that's is, true. You can have it. What was it? It's cheap. Um, quality, cheap, or quick. Quick. Yeah. And you could pick any two. You can pick any two, but never all three. Yeah. So, so you, you can do it quickly and quality. It just won't be cheap. It won't be cheap at all. It'll be very expensive. Oh, yeah. And that's where you get your big studio films, essentially. Yeah. Which, you know. Shot the, over the course of like six months or three months or however long the production cycle is. Yeah. Yeah. Usually those are like three month yeah. turnovers for uh, production. And it might be longer for their other elements like development and whatnot. Mm-hmm. They can spend yeah, any right, length right, right. of time in. But yeah, generally production is like three to six months. But for, for, a, like for a proper studio yeah, produced film studio stuff. But of course, it all depends. Yeah, Cause technically, these John Wick films are all studio films now, even though they started, even though the first film was an indie mm-hmm. uh, project. However, those get turned around in like 70 day production cycles. It's real quick well, uh, because the director. Yeah, but that's because they do uh, all of the work up front. In yeah, the, they do in it up front. They do it in production. I can't remember if it's David Leach or Chad Stelsky is the one that's still directing the franchise. Mm-hmm. One of them yeah. split off. The other one's still directing those movies. But yeah, he's really big on previs because he comes from the stunt world. Well, not just previs, but uh, just rehearsals and re- in yeah, general. Strict and rehearsals. Uh, so that saves a lot of time in production where you get to cut some costs. So and results well, in some pretty awesome stuff when you finally get to set. Yeah, because they, obviously all the... All the performers know exactly what they're going to do. They can get more good takes to choose from. Mm-hmm. That being said, that's not how we're doing this because this is, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is Minecraft. Dang it. We can't. You get, we, we can make it exactly how we want it to be the first time because animation. Yeah. Power of animation. So that's the Death Chronicle season two. We're going to probably be talking about it more as production progresses and maybe releasing some behind the scenes stuff as we go. Kind of like we did the production diaries for the first one. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we might release it all after the show starts who knows but we have big plans and we are so excited for everybody to see how this is going to turn out i'm so excited to see how it's going to turn out because we we've seen very little production wise so far so really this is almost just sort of an announcement that production is beginning more so but we've seen the potential we 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 know the direction it's headed i think better than anybody else right now because obviously we've been in touch with all of the different avenues of production we can see the end and it's just it's just obviously it's just getting there but it's a it's a really really pretty shiny end (laughs) oh yeah i'm excited i'm excited and the thing i like about this too i wanted to talk about this uh going back to your writing uh we talk about how to do proper sequels a lot I'm not sure if we've. Uh, yeah, we have, we I don't know if we've officially. I don't, no, we did it. We have officially talked about our sequel philosophy when we did Aliens uh, for the film school. Oh, that's um, true. I think we yeah, did. We did. might have touched on it. Yeah. This is, Aliens is such a good it's sequel. It's such a good. It's just, arguably yes. the perfect sequel. Yes. Aliens, Terminator 2, mm. those kinds of movies. <laughs> James Cameron sequels. Really yeah, as well. but, We're yeah just, we didn't tell you, but we have James Cameron working on this now. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Absolutely not. We don't have that big of a budget. But we, yeah, this is. A proper sequel obviously we talked about what we wanted a sequel we did it oh yeah for sure for sure and yeah we have very particular ideas of what a sequel should be because it is antithetical to art almost the idea of sequels you know in some <laughs> ways right or the idea it, it, of franchises i suppose is what franchises because like sequels and because uh, sometimes sequels are just a multi-part of a singular story yeah because i was gonna say like what is that called when you have like an, a, a bunch of pieces of art in a group that are all the, of the same theme 
That's called a collection. A, a collection is a, I think there's a different term that I'm thinking of, but a, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think, he, I, know, I, think yeah. I know what term you might be thinking of, but it escapes me right now. Yeah. But yeah, franchises, the idea of franchises is almost antithetical to making good art. And we're very conscious of that. And so when we do sequels, we don't want to do sequels based on the success of a predecessor. We want to do sequels because there's another story to tell that yeah. is different from the original and can work within the same world or same character cast or what have you, but is something different and something that extrapolates and expands upon things that came before as well. Yes, because ideally we'll have a story with a with a complete beginning, middle and end. And uh, depending on, of course, the kind of story you want to tell, you can't have uh, what is that called? Zero arc or null arc? Stories oh, you're talking about a neutral arc, neutral arc, neutral arc stories. Um, although I guess part of that is that the environment changes because either the character yeah, there's will still change. An arc. There's yeah. still a beginning, the, middle and end. Yeah, sure. Because I was thinking in terms of setting or a character, depending on uh, yeah. Yeah, the, depending on the kind of story you want to tell, there will be a complete beginning, middle and end. And the end being that what we saw before has fundamentally changed. So if you go into a sequel, you have to begin where the last one ended, not where the f- first one began, because then that's not. It doesn't help anything. You're telling the same story again. And obviously that's a very safe thing to do when it comes to investments as film as investments, right? Mm-hmm. That's not what we're doing. We're not trying to make money off of this. That'd uh, be nice though. It would be, it would be nice if we could, but there are way easier ways to make money off a of film than what we're doing. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Cause we're too busy trying to make it like good story. Yeah, we're trying to make, which art. is uh, difficult when you're trying to make money. Yeah. So we've decided to prioritize telling good stories over making money. Much to our detriment, perhaps. Perhaps. But, however, yeah, I don't know. We just have that conviction, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. We would much rather. Okay. I think I can speak for myself. For, or I'm going to speak for myself, but I think this applies to both of us. I, will, I would much rather die having made good art than made eh, art, but uh, very wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would be in the same boat because really what's important to me is the work. Yeah. Right. And not, hoping that it will change somebody's life or touch them or, you know, give them some inspiration to do something great themselves. Yeah. yeah. Or just make them feel things, you know, yeah. sometimes that's just enough. Stirring up human emotion. That's uh, hard to do. That's way, way harder to do than uh, earning a buck. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah, like that, that, that's what's important to me is the work itself. Not necessarily the success of it, but the, the work is what, you know, satisfies me. Mm-hmm. That's what keeps me going. And yeah, by the time I get to the end of my life, looking back on it, yeah, I, I have. So I don't know, perhaps this is this is just a trait of me that I'm always have this weird consciousness of just like how little time I have. And so like what I think about, it, it's like we have so little time in our lifetimes. Like, what is life? It's like a breath. And we have so little time. And I don't want to look back and see that I spent my limited time chasing dollars with the chasing someone else's dream. Yeah, basically chasing dollars, chasing someone else's dream with the work that I produced that I was passionate about producing. Right. Because it's like this is storytelling is a gift that not everybody has. Not everybody's necessarily inclined that way or called to be in that field. If you you know believe in any kind of transcendent calling. So, yeah, what you do with that is incredibly important. And in the limited time that I have, I want to populate it with projects that matter. Absolutely. I have a question then as well to add on to the end of this. We've talked, we often talk about how we know when we've made it, when we've, when we've been successful. How would you say, you know, when a 
work of art in and of itself has become successful? How would you know that you have created a successful piece of art? Hmm. How would I define success yeah. for an individual piece? Yeah, not necessarily for yourself, like not necessarily being, I am now a successful artist because these things have happened, but the art piece, the piece itself having been successful. Hmm. I might have to think about that one a little bit. Yeah, stir on that for a little bit. Okay. Just sit there and, uh, and let us do. Because I have a very easy answer. And What's it, your answer? Uh, the, well, the very easy answer for me is just, I know if my work has been successful, if at least one person views it and feels something, I guess, is just what it comes down to. One person looks at it and says, wow, that made me think things. That made me feel things. That made me contemplate whatever. That, well, if that has happened to at least one person, that, that work was, was worth the effort. Yeah, I think I would say I'm in the same boat because I I was going through a number of because really, yeah, like I went on a whole train of thought and contemplating it there. But I think ultimately what I was trying to arrive at is essentially what you just said. Mm-hmm. I think you kind of summarized succinctly what I would have probably taken longer to say <laughs> if I was uh, uh, right, taking right. a moment to arrive at anything there, because that was sort of the direction I was setting. Mm-hmm. So really, I think, yeah, we have a uniformity there, which is kind of cool, or at least uh, an agreement. And I think, of course, I think part of that uh, comes up with having developed our taste and develop, having developed our taste and creating art similarly at like, you know, in a similar environment at the same time-ish. That's true. Same time-ish. And kind of separately, though. Yeah. Because I think we kind of really, when we rekindled our bond after, you know, you got out of school and whatnot, like, I feel like that was really where we came together creatively, mostly. Yeah. And I feel like we developed these tastes though or at least this direction in art prior to that i'm not sure about that because i think before we came together and decided we were going to do this take this journey together i think we had at least maybe i know at least i had i had a different idea of what i wanted my art to be that's true that's true now that i'm thinking about it i might be i might be retroactively what do you call that? Patting yourself on the back. You're like yeah Yeah, i was always a great artist (laughs) i was always no, no no like retroactively um I don't know, but the, doing the story, you know, yeah. I might, I might, I think you might, I might you, have been, you might have retroactively been projecting, uh, yeah, your, yeah, past. Yeah, 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 I think I might have been rewriting the history a bit there. Yeah, because I, I know for me, um, because that's true. And then when I look, really look back on it and scrutinize that time period, I don't know if I would have had high ideas of what art could be I when know. we first started out with P squared and yeah. P cubed. I know for a fact, at least when I was in high school. I, I had the rock star mentality. I wanted to do art because I knew it would be, you know, it, ah, it, get, it gets sexy. It gets, gets ladies. Ladies like art. Ladies like people who are, or just anybody really, because I was dating a lot of people. <laughs> but let's, be, let's be clear. It wasn't just ladies. Um, but it was like, yeah, like that's the sexy thing to do. People love culture people. It's like, so I'm going to be cultured. How do I do that? I am an artist now. And I'm a rock star because I was also in a band and I was painting and I was yeah, writing rebel. lyrics and I was writing lyrics and poetry. And I was so just like, oh, I was on the cutting edge of something. I don't know what the heck I was doing because I wasn't really doing art. I was doing art because I thought it would get me other people's approval. Yeah. Yeah. And I think where I was was almost antithetical to where what we were just talking about, really, which is I think I was approaching it more so commercially. Like, I yeah. think I saw it as like a career path. Yeah. More so. You wanted to anything. have the whole YouTube YouTuber career path and do that thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then use it to launch into some, you know, yeah. doing the creative stuff, which I guess is kind of what you're. Yeah. Uh, well, Markiplier did that you've shown me now. Yeah. You know, which is it like, is a valid path. It is a valid. It path. Is, yeah. But like I didn't because I, I don't know too much about Markiplier, but you showed me some stuff he's been doing that apparently is really dope narratively. Yeah. Um, so 
I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I I think of him as like a bog standard content yeah. creator kind oh, of guy. Oh, that, that YouTuber? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then you showed me some stuff. I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah. I didn't know he like was creative, period. <laughs> <laughs> like I thought he was just some schmuck. Yeah. Um, well, he still is just some schmuck, but he's also some schmuck who's also doing really good art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Turns out most people are just some schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, you know what I mean? I think I had more commercial ideals. Yeah, I saw it as yeah. sort of a, a career path. And I think, you know, I think of that old adage that has I've been attributed to a lot of different places, but I first heard it through David Harbour mm -hmm. in that interview. Right. I think that you showed me uh, he on, did Hot, on Ones. Hot Ones. Yeah. Yeah, where he quoted someone else as saying, yep. Um, don't do it unless you have to yeah, when it comes to have acting. to. And I think that is really kind of universal for all art forms where really when it comes to art, you shouldn't do it unless yeah. you have to. And I think I came to it with a more commercial mindset. And I think when you realize how difficult it is to make it jive commercially, which, you know, obviously you can make a lot of sacrifices to yeah. shortcut that. But once you realize how difficult that is overall, like you come to a challenge point where your assumptions are challenged and you have to decide, okay, is this something I really want to do? Mm -hmm. And I decided, yeah, I think this is something I really want to do. Not because it's profitable, because it certainly hasn't been, at least mm -hmm. not for me, um, but because it's something that I need to do. Yeah. And that's, I think, really where my ideals started to change. Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of Matt Colville's video on living a creative life as well. He also brings that up. He, well, I mean, Matt Colville, fantastic just presenter of ideas. He puts it extremely well as well. We're talking about like living a creative life is not by any stretch of the imagination easy. It is difficult to, it is both uh, like physically and emotionally and like mentally difficult. Creating new stories is, is hard. And obviously there's when it comes to, you know, I think he comes at it from a writing point of view, like writing new things, like you have writer's block sometimes, but also people around you aren't going to like what you do. Mm. And like living this kind of life, if this is the kind of thing you, if it's the kind but of thing you want to do. Sometimes people are going to try and actively stop you. Actively try to stop you because for some reason, that's what people do. <laughs> but yeah, like. So but, many people are going to tell you, you can't do it. Yeah. And in, uh, I, I found this, uh, this amazing quote that I, I can't wait to use with my, my, one of my bard characters. Oh boy. It's just, uh, those who say that it is impossible should clear the way for those who are actively doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard you use that quote before. That's such a good one. I don't remember if that's actually how it goes, but that's the quote. It's like, there are lots of people will just, will just say these things. Like, you can't do that while somebody's doing it. And you have to realize that those people don't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> wow, get wrecked, those people. Yeah, you know, you, you know who you are, naysayer. <laughs> you, naysayer, I naysay you. And I think that, I, I, I'm glad we had this little talk. I didn't expect this to evolve into the whole philosophy of art discussion well, this is, off of off of announcing the Denneth Chronicle season two, which will be coming out next year, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> Plug it again. But yeah, like I'm glad we had this talk on here because this is a huge part of what our mission is, I think, here, because we've realized, I think, as we've gotten older, that we're not just artists, but we're teachers. I think ultimately so. we're probably going to teach overall, like I would still identify myself primarily as an artist, as a practitioner. However, I think over the course of our lifetimes, we're probably going to have way more opportunities to teach than we will to create. Absolutely. Right. And so I think there's a value in that in and of itself. And I think as we've kind of grown as teachers and as caring about teaching and passing on what knowledge we acquire about art, I feel like one of our primary goals has always been to enable artists yes. and enable artistry. And that is the biggest hump 
is just starting to do it. Yeah. Once you can get over get over that initial hump, then you've already won a majority of the battle. Yeah. And we are huge advocates for just going out and do it. Like there's obviously mm-hmm. you can do all the learning and all of yeah, the research and all the theory of it, but it, none of that will can can even hold a candle just going out and doing it once. Oh yeah. And whatever it is, whatever it is, just go yeah, out and do it once. Experience matters. And yeah. And well, that's part of the paradigm too. And we've talked about this ad nauseum, but I don't know if we've talked about it on the record, is the fact that there are kind of like these two edges to creating that need to be held in balance, which is theory and practice. Mm-hmm. And I think this probably is just a general learning thing, but uh, I, I kind of apply it to art because that's the craft that I know. But theory and practice, you can't have too much of one or the other. You need a yeah. perfect balance of the two, because if you have a lot of practice, right, you've created a lot of things, but you have no theory, then you'll create a lot of very mediocre things. Mm-hmm. Or very technically insubstantial things. Yes. Yes. And yeah, you could create something that has like profound ideas within it. But if you don't have the technical craftsmanship to be able to make those carry across in a way that doesn't distract the audience, essentially, you have to be able to communicate those ideas. Yeah, you have to be able to communicate them. You have to be able to communicate them effectively and you have to be able to produce it well so that the people engaging with your thing like engaging with it. Yeah. At the bare minimum. You have to understand it. (laughs) Yeah. And so... You know, that's practice without uh, theory. But if you have all theory and you don't get any practice, you never then make it's basically anything. it's pointless. Yeah, yeah you, you haven't made anything. anything. Yeah. It's Maybe like, you could you write a, a book about all the theory you know, but you'll yeah. never be able to create the thing that you have all this expertise on. I think there's there's words for these people who have too much of one or the other. I think those who have too much theory and not enough practice are called critics. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, small joke. But no, really, I, there is... There are tons of people who know a lot about whatever field. Pick any, pick any field. Yeah, right? especially now in the information age. Yeah, especially now when you could just say, "I'm going to pick a field and become a you know armchair expert, an armchair expert for a week, and yeah. then immediately forget all of it because you're not practicing." But anybody can become an expert on anything given enough time. Basically, you don't have to have any structured education anymore to become an expert. Now you can just do that. They're they're not creators. They're critics. They understand why somebody made something that that doesn't hit very well it doesn't land or could have been better but they can't make it yeah they're critics yeah and there's there's nothing wrong with being a critic i was gonna say nothing wrong with being a critic yes as i've gotten older i've definitely learned the place of the critic in the art world and i think that's an incredibly valuable position that you that needs filled because ultimately to a certain extent critics are who we're creating for yeah. Not to say critics as in like people who are attached to a media outlet. That's not what I mean by Mm-mm. critic there. People who are what critical. I mean, yeah. What I mean is people who engage with your work critically and who think about it and who know your work or know yeah. the industry or know something, have some sort of knowledge that brings them to a point where they could actually look at your work and think about it in multiple dimensions. Yeah. And not so, just the surface face value of I have now consumed it and I liked it. Yes. But the issue is when. And you see this a lot with these kind of Internet armchair experts who have a lot of theory, who are packed full to the brim with theory and have watched so many video essays. So many. And are just verbose in their comment section. It becomes a problem when the critic purports themselves to be an artist. Yes. Who hasn't made anything. Yeah, that is a problem. (laughs) When it's just like, oh, you're doing all these things wrong. And here's all this knowledge I have. And here's what I would do. Here's what I would do. Yeah. Here's how you, here's how you fix it. Yeah. That's, and then, 
always, always red flag is here's yeah. how you fix it. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, okay. We do this a lot too, but the problem is when it comes down to here's how you fix it, or here's what I would do, or here's like, I wouldn't have done it that way. The, the immediate response should always be then go do it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Cause we, that's the thing. Yeah, you're right. We do that a lot. We, especially, we do it more so in private conversation, We do, but we're hopefully we could port some of these conversations over here where we think it, we have very refined ideas, mm-hmm. but yeah, we do that as a general practice is when we engage with something we don't like, we try to figure out, okay, why didn't we like it and how would we fix it? But we do that as a practice, yeah. right? As something that's like, okay, we could take concrete lessons out of that and then apply that in our next project yeah. so or if, use it to inspire something that yeah. we're going to create. So right? if it never have, goes to waste. If we come up across some, uh, a similar situation of a piece of media that we consumed and we're like, oh, this had a problem. This didn't uh, come off exactly the, the way the creator maybe intended it to be. How would we go about saying that same message in a better way? And then we write that into uh, something else that we're going to do. We don't fix the thing that we're looking at, we take the lessons learned from the thing that we're looking at and apply it to our own art. That is, and that is an effective way of doing good critique. Not saying, you know, this one movie is bad. Here's how to remake that same movie, but better. But here's the lessons that we learned from this movie. And here's how I'm going to apply that in whatever movie that, uh, or script or other production. It doesn't even have to be the same medium painting that I am going to use. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and that could be fun as a general exercise of how here's how you remake that exact same thing, but you know, better, but yeah. you have to, but it's definitely, yeah. there's a place for that and you have to approach it in a fun way, it's not in a fun. way that's yeah. like, I'm going to destroy this thing. Cause it's like, that's not helpful for anyone. It's not helpful because first of all, that piece of art already exists and you can't make it again. And it doesn't help anybody to say, saved. <laughs> I think it's mostly an ego thing, right? It's like, yeah. you made that. But if I made that, it would have been better. There's no proof that that is true in any way. It's purely an ego thing of just saying I'm better than you, but you know I don't have to show it right now. Yeah. So that's where that's where theory gets out of whack. Uh, and you know, with a critic, that that's when the critic becomes a bad critic, essentially. Yeah. Right. But the the then I guess what would be the opposite out of so I was going to say uh, the, uh, the one who practices too much and doesn't have enough theory that's just a bad artist <laughs> well not necessarily because there are tons of people i see let's say um Nick cage oh no <laughs> <laughs> i thought about it for a second and i was like got a shiver <laughs> no, no I, there are tons of artists i'm thinking mostly like a lot of illustrators who who are stuck in a style let's say right mm. uh, there, are, there are a ton of illustrators who are let's let's pick a let's, let's pick on one uh, completely at random let's say anime uh, <laughs> oh, get wrecked, anime artist! I'm sorry, but there's way too many of you. Darn mangoka! Yeah, oh, they they, they wish they would. Uh, they wish they were, but they've never have written an actual manga. Oh dang! That's yeah. just because it's hard to get published these days. No, they have never written a webcomic. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's also true. It's not hard to get published these days. <laughs> <laughs> but what what I mean is, I see this argument a lot of people who have nailed a singular style and cannot deviate from that style because they actually don't have good illustrative chops. They don't actually have any good idea of like, okay, here's proper anatomy and I'm choosing to do anime proportions because of of a stylistic choice. It's, this is how I learned to draw and this is the only way I learned how to draw. Mm. And they can continue to draw fantastic things in that singular art style, but cannot deviate from it because they have no theory. They don't understand the fundamental underlying principles of anatomy and composition and all these other things. They can take what they see, copy it, extremely well but you're at that point you're a printer you're a copy machine (laughs) you're not an artist if you can only do the one thing then 
you're, you don't have the fundamental, you don't have the chops to be to be able to uh, leave your comfort zone. I think that would be the opposite end of that. I don't know what the name for that would be, is, yeah. but I think that would be the opposite end of the spectrum for somebody who has too much practice with not enough theory. And sometimes what's scary is when you find industry professionals who yeah. might have some of these flaws in one end of the extreme or the other, and it shows. <laughs> I think, I, okay. I have an example for for both. I was going to say, can we pick on some people here? Yes, I think we should. <laughs> this is the part of the podcast where we pick on people and publicly shame them. And publicly kidding. shame you people who are way more successful than us and by almost every metric. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking in the illustrative medium like you were just okay. talking about. Oh, I think I know where this is going. What's his name again? Rob Liefeld? Rob Liefeld. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Lots of Rob practice. Liefeld. Lots of practice, but, but practically no theory. <laughs> when you push it, when, when he gets pushed. And he pumps out an art piece. Yeah. And you just look at it and you say, where are your hands? <laughs> Something about this just isn't right. Yeah. When push comes to shove and you trace pornography. <laughs> has he done that? He has. Yeah. Ugh. There's uh, there are really hilarious examples of him drawing female characters, obviously, mm-hmm. which he is quite known for doing quite known for doing because he has a he has a style, let's say drawing female characters faces. That are very clearly used, at least reference. I'm not going to say he's straight up traced, but used references of like of O faces in pornography of just like uh, characters looking a certain comic book way, right? So he'll use like pornographic reference for characters' faces, and it's really obvious when in the same page a character has two different faces because he used two different models. <laughs> That's awful. It's real bad. And also, but he's just, published. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also. <laughs> His anatomy. His anatomy is real bad. <laughs> and also just his spatial awareness. Uh, yeah. Like, he, he draws... He just draws funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no other way around it. Yeah. But, but, yeah, I think you did a deep dive on Rob Liefeld at some point, and you figured yeah. out what exactly made him so successful. And it was mostly that, like, just the sheer volume of art he could pump out yeah. was unparalleled in Completely, the industry. Yeah, it was purely by the sheer fact that he could hit deadlines. Which is... The most important part of the comic books industry, yeah. from what I understand from people who talk about it from the inside, is being able to hit deadlines is huge because you are pumping out so much material, right? Most comics are like monthly or like even bi-monthly, you know, you're, you have to make a lot of material. That's a lot of art that it's you have to drawing. make on a deadline and you're selling these for like two bucks, <laughs> <laughs> two bucks a pop, two bucks a pop. Yeah. It's a lot of material that has to be made for comic books. And you can see apparently in his, in his body of work, you can see at which point he started becoming, I don't, I don't know what you, I don't know what you would call it. Like a line artist where it's like, okay, like yeah. we have not line as in like the, like a, a, like a, pencil, a pencil line, but like a, on, on a production line. Yeah. Like a line uh, cook. Yeah. Like a line, a line cook or like a line, you know, a line worker. It got to the point where he started pumping out things so quickly. I, I don't want to say he forgot to, he actively avoided doing backgrounds. <laughs> yeah. A lot of his backgrounds have been eventually moved to being like, like either it's like solid colors or gradients or hashes. And it's just like, yeah, like this is, it's, it's just the mood now. <laughs> like the background is, 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 is an, abstract mood as opposed to like there's a building there it's like we have an urban feel more like <laughs> and it became very strange because it was just these characters plastered over these blank backgrounds assumed to have been in the environment that you established in the on the previous panel in the establishing shot and then completely forgot about drawing the environment from that point forward yeah rob liefeld is an interesting case study because He's just so successful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's so successful. And his art is just so, like, technically bad on it's, every conceivable it is, level. It is technically like, bad. It's it not is, even, like, it's not even an opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it is the, the technical craftsmanship of it is just not good. 
and, and, and here's the thing, you're allowed to like that. Yeah. You're allowed to like bad art. It doesn't make it any worse, or it doesn't make it any better, rather. It's still bad art. Yeah. Apparently it sells, though. It sells. So what's on the opposite end? Do you, what example Somebody who's all theory. Of? All theory. Um, and, and I was thinking of filmmakers originally. Yeah. And well, because, like, on the bad practice, before you brought up illustration, I was originally going to say, or, like, too much practice, rather. Yeah. Um, and not enough theory. I was going to go, like, into the realm of, like, Tommy Wiseau or something in the film world. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I was thinking. he got a film done. He did get a film done. Did he, though? <laughs> <laughs> He's not the only one of his kind, though. There are a lot of directors that are like that who yeah. make feature-length films. Here's a, like, <laughs> That's here, all that could be said about here's, here's the thing. This is the thing that I didn't realize when I was a, uh, when I was a child. When I was a, a youngin who didn't understand how the world worked. Films aren't some, like, transcendent piece of... I don't know, entertainment that was gifted to you from like this otherworldly extraterrestrial medium that was like, and now here's a movie for you to enjoy. And we <laughs> curated it and it's exactly the way we wanted it to be. Movies happen by accident sometimes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. as, and like getting published is technically much more so uh, now than it was back then, but it has always been technically you've, you've been able to produce a movie on your own. You've always, you've always been able to technically do that, obviously. Nowadays, there's a lot more avenues for that than it was back then when you actually had film reels that you had to cut and edit and move around actual physical pieces of stuff. But anybody can make one. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean because you made a film doesn't necessarily mean it's a good one. Anybody can make a film. And that, that blew my mind when I was a child. I didn't get it. When I saw a bad, a bad movie, I was like, this must be for somebody else because I clearly didn't understand it. Turns out, no, those movies were just bad. <laughs> <laughs> on the other, so on the other end of the spectrum of going into too much theory and not enough practice. Oh, uh, well, maybe this is just too much theory because I think this person is practiced. They're just not good. Maybe. The first thing that came to mind was M. Night Shyamalan. Mm. He's a guy who has very big ideas and he has a lot of like, a, he has a ton of just like, I know exactly what I want to do. Yeah. But he's just not good at doing it. <laughs> <laughs> is that too much theory though? Does he have theory, really? That's the thing that I'm, I'm thinking about now, because... I honestly don't know. I haven't seen a lot of M. Night Shyamalan movies, so I can't make a thorough critique. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't know if he lacks for theory. I just know how I hear people reacting to his films. Sounds like he doesn't have a lot of theory. Well, I think... Because if I, I think you it's had he, theory, you would be able to execute your strongest suits more consistently. Not necessarily, because that's what we're talking about. That requires practice. You think so? Because uh, I think purely having theory, because uh, uh, you can go down the wrong route when you have too much theory. I think what M. Night Shyamalan has is a theory, <laughs> right? Because like, he has too much of a theory. Right. He doesn't have enough practice to know that it's not good. And that's I, what I think the difference is um, with him is like he definitely he has a very clear idea of what he wants to do. And that's where the theory comes in. He, he's like, I know exactly what I want to do. I know right. the story that I want to tell. He's just not good at doing those. Okay. He got lucky a, a few times, but the practice isn't there. And because of the practice isn't there, he is not consistent. Yeah. That, okay. that, that, that is my example. That is my proposal. Huh. I hadn't thought about that. Because, yeah, having a lot of theory does not, does not mean having perfect theory. That's true. That's true. And I think it requires uh, a balance of, obviously, a balance of research and theory with practice to have good theory. Because you have to weed out the bad theory. Mm -hmm. But yeah, ultimately, that's really what it is. I think those are the two most prominent elements that need to be held in balance for an artist. And that's the way I've always thought, uh, not, not necessarily always, but that's how I currently conceive yeah. of it. Uh, or the, at least that's one part of the paradigm. That's one thing that's very important to understand that binary and to recognize that it exists so that you can make sure you're getting a healthy dose of both because you need to learn your craft. You need theory. 
but you also need to just do the thing. Just and do it. Ultimately, repetition. There's going to be elements of theory that you can't get before you do it. Yeah. And so you're not a complete artist until you're both. And that's why I say the first time you do anything uh, is the biggest lessons uh, you can get in that field. You do it once and it's like, wow, there are things that I didn't even conceive would have been something I needed to think about until I got my hands on it because I've never put my hands on it. I never started doing the thing. I didn't realize that hand position makes so much of a difference when you're drawing. That is like, that's one of the things that mm -hmm. you wouldn't know unless you started drawing. You actually <laughs> yeah. picked up a pencil. I was like, wait a minute, the position of my arm and how I move my arm and making lines changes how I make lines. Yeah. You can, you can know where to put those lines until you actually put down the pencil. And it's like, ah, it's all different. I didn't realize. Well, this turned it into, this turned into an interesting lesson, but I think uh, we'll probably have to wind this down. We will, now. I think, yeah. But thank you all very much for listening. Can't wait for you all to see more of Edenith Chronicle season two. And uh, yeah, I guess that's where we'll end this episode. So this has been the Hypercube podcast. This show is edited by Lauren Pacheco, mixed by Rafael Pacheco, with original theme music by Mono Memory. Until next time, we'll see you all later. God bless. See you on the flip side.